welcome to Pep Talk by Perpetual, a talent advisory firm based out of New York City and Paris. This podcast is all about raw conversation with real people. My name is Irene Topokov, principal at Perpetual, and I am delighted to welcome today Renaud Visage, the co-founder and former CTO of Eventbrite. Renaud, welcome. Good morning, Irene. Ready? I'm totally ready. Let's go. <laughs> uh, I think there, there are some books that you like. You're a big reader, but there's one book that you like particularly. Can you let us know which one and why? Tintin has been my reading of choice when I was young and growing. Um, and still, I think, a very uh, inspiring hero. He was a curious person uh, who wanted to report on the world and ended up in all these incredible adventures that he had to extricate himself from traveling the world uh, with his dog Milou. So I really aspired to be at least somewhat at some level a bit like him uh, in my grown-up life um, and he's been a, a deep inspiration I think for me. Oh yeah, actually Tintin looks a little bit like you, you know, he's uh, blonde exactly. and tall, thin. Uh, do you have a dog? <laughs> I don't have a dog. I used to have a dog when I grew up, so maybe there was something there. It was very different from Milou, the dog, but I definitely had a, a Tintin look uh, for quite a while, especially when my hair grows in front. You can pass for him. A bit taller maybe, but very close. He's both uh, serious and also adventurous. Very interesting character indeed. And very uh, resourceful as, as a person and, and creative in his problem solving. Absolutely. No, no, you're completely right. Actually, there's been a beautiful exhibition a few years ago here in Paris about Tintin yeah. and Hergé's work. I guess you, you've seen this exhibition. While we were preparing, uh, I was also asking, yeah, if there's a, a particular song or film or object, but we found out no, there was a color that you that you like particularly. Which one is it, and why? Yeah, I'm not too attached to objects. Maybe except my camera because I love photography. I've always been fascinated by the blue color uh, and. It's a cold color, I know, but it brings me calm and I project myself sailing or, or swimming or playing in the waves. Um, so it's always been my refuge color, I would call it, and the one that I wear the most proudly and uh, connect the most on a personal level. Maybe that speaks to my calm nature, maybe, but uh, yeah, that's the, the color I resonate the most with. Very interesting how color can be also resourceful. Blue, of course, is is uh, universal, and the and the sky, and the sea, and uh, yeah, and the there's universe. There's so many blues as well. And, uh, the dark blues of the late evening, and uh, the big bright blue sky of California, which was one of the things I loved when I moved there. Um, so a lot of uh, variants uh, of of emotions that come with different tints. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and California, yeah, definitely different uh, from uh, the the blue that's mostly gray in Paris <laughs> at the moment. Uh, Can you introduce yourself a little bit more before we we come to the heart of this podcast about the turning points? Who are you, and where do you come from? 
So I came from France. I'm pure product of the French system, I would say. Um, grew up in France, moved around a lot. So every time someone asks me where I'm from, I can't really say from anywhere. I mean, from France, because that's where I grew up. Uh, but I never stayed in any place for very long. Um, my parents had jobs that forced them to move quite frequently, and that's why. Um, and then I was always fascinated by the US for some reason. Maybe it's all the TV series I was watching, uh, the American dream that was alive and being well uh, propagated through films and other materials. Uh, but I had that passion and I knew sometime I would go to the US. So I went to engineering school in France and got the unique opportunity to spend my last year of engineering school in a American University at Cornell University on the East Coast. Uh, we had the choice between three different universities. I knew very little about the American system at the time. I just picked Cornell because they had a, a program that matched my interests. Uh, so a bit like Tintin, I wanted to travel the world and do great things. So I thought civil engineering was going to be that career where I'm sent by these large corporations to build buildings or bridges or other uh, massive structures uh, everywhere around the world. So that's why I picked uh, Cornell and, and moved to the US when I was 22. It was starting from scratch again. And I had been learning English for a very long time, but not an English that makes you very comfortable in an English-speaking country. Uh, the French system is very notorious for not teaching you enough to be very fluent when you get to a new place. So the first two or three months, I have to say, I did not understand everything that was said and had, a, had to play catch up. And I think that that's fine. It forced me to dig into my uh, deeper resources and, and just learn again. Uh, I think that was uh, very insightful. In, in, especially you don't learn mathematical uh, equations or language in in school. So that, that, that's where I took a catch up for a while, but I uh, really enjoyed the experience. The American universities were totally different from being French schools, much larger, much more resources. Uh, you could see like the investment that was made into these universities. Um, and just, I met people from all over the world in the, the program I was at Cornell people from Asia, from Europe, from South America. And that, that was really the first time that I had a um, multicultural, multinational environment to, to strive in. Uh, so it was a very awesome experience and that made me want to stay in the US uh, after my studies, which I did um, and became a civil engineer for a geotechnical environmental firm in, in the Bay Area in San Francisco. Could you recall some specific persons or, or professors that you met or other students that kind of gave you a different perspective? I mean, I re remember my teachers and I, as much as I didn't remember my teachers from Central Lyon, which was my school in France, because we had many and they were rotating quite quickly. Uh, in the master's program that I attended at Cornell, we had very few professors, we had like four or five that would teach all the courses and, and the course, the classes were much smaller also. They were 10 to 20 people. So you had to build a very strong relationship with, uh, all the professors you were working with. And it was a very personal relationship compared to my schooling before. So I 
they were very accomplished people. A lot of ties to the industry, which I did not realize professors were doing before. Uh, that was a thing. I think it's much more a thing in the U.S. than in France. Uh, mm-hmm. But that tie to the industry and their implication into actual real projects. They were not just talking about theoretical concepts, but they were involved in uh, construction projects and research that was very applied and compelling for the field. So they had published a lot and were experts in their field. What was very different at the master's program was how we interacted with other students. So we had a lot of group projects, which we did not have in the French system. Uh, So we would have to um, work with, I think, 40 or 50 different students who had different specialties on a specific project, which was building a new building in Manhattan, in New York. And we were working with real firms that had done this before and who would evaluate the overall end project at the completion of uh, the study. Uh, So that was my real first experience in working as a team and having deadlines and that are not just exams that you take on your own, but really like uh, leveraging all these energy and and interests of a varied group of people towards a very concrete goal. Uh, I think that was very useful for the next steps in my career. This practical aspect of the of the American uh, society, I would say, not just in the university in general, is that what made you also stay in the U.S. later? What you liked in the culture? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there was definitely an openness, attractive place for a lot of people from all over the world, and I think the American dream was much different then than it was to than it is today maybe and the few, last few years have been tough maybe on the u.s image overall abroad for a variety of reasons but at the time it was still very vibrant and i was really attracted to the possibility of everything is possible in the u.s and that didn't have that feeling in france where things are quite formatted the schools are you come out of the best schools you go into industry and I didn't feel the same realm of possibilities that I could feel in the, in the U.S., especially on the West Coast, which was very dynamic and, and changing very rapidly in 1996 when I moved there. Uh, I could feel the energy of the tech industry, not really the industry I had picked at the time for the, my first job, but uh, it was the exciting to be in a place that had such energy and such forward-thinking people uh, that were creating the industry of the future that became the web. When you came out of, of Cornell and after you, you grand école here in France, so you started as a civil engineer, but pretty rapidly you decided to switch to the software industry, to the software adventure. Can you let us know more about that because I guess that was a big turning point for you, a life-changing decision. Yeah, I mean, came up, I always liked uh, software. I just didn't like the, the software industry because it, it seemed old and you were sending CDs in the mail every six months with a new version and that was not exciting. So when I first made was aware of the web and, and its pot- potential for one person, including me potentially, to write a few lines of code and that became something graphic that can other anyone in the world could interact with. That, that power seemed incredible. So I, I was very curious about the technology and how it would evolve. So I started reading books on 
programming on different standards of, of the time, HTML, uh, CSS, JavaScript came a bit later, uh, and was just fascinated by the power that an individual has in, in this new world. So I started building websites for on my own interests. Um, the first one was a, an index of uh, nature photographers. My dad was a nature photographer, and I thought it would be great to have all wildlife photographers presented on, on one um, site where you could see their images and look at their bios. So I, I built that for fun. Um, and then I found applications at the um, uh, geotechnical environmental firm I was working for. I was managing large projects and I didn't have the data that I needed at my fingertips. And I thought we could build a, a web layer on top of the accounting software that we were using to track all the projects we were working on. So I learned this giant database, how, what, what was in there and how we could summarize it and present it. Um, internally so that we could have better tools, better reporting, better sharing of data across the company. So I took on that project pretty much on my like 20% time, like Google, uh, started doing prototypes. And then three years later, I was doing that almost full time because everybody saw the value. Everybody had all these new reports that they could have access to and it became super important for them. But then that's when I realized that I was much more interested by that work than by my regular um, site work. And I was responsible for large remediation sites. I was doing a lot of the 3D work around modeling and creating the plans for it. But really my main passion, I think, became the web section of, of my responsibilities. So in 2000, I decided to jump and from the civil industry, civil engineering industry to software and took a job as a junior developer in nascent startup. They had about 30 people when I joined and it was the com combination of two passions, photography on one side and then web development on the other. Uh, it was a photo sharing startup. So that was one of the first uh, to emerge and I learned a lot through that first experience with as a software developer. So it was like uh, an accelerated learning on the Valley ecosystem, I would call it. Because when I joined, we were about 30 people, uh, some very smart people, and we were building a new category of, of types of software, basically, because photo sharing, digital photography was just emerging. There were like a few three megapixel cameras, um, but it was not the main trend that it is today. And there was a lot of passion around the topic and a lot of energy and a lot of resources as well. Like we were able to raise significant money from uh, Kleiner Perkins, I think at the time, $50 million. Wow. But also within one year, we managed to grow the company from 30 to 120. And then we went back to 10 people at the end of that first year. So <laughs> that's why I said was accelerated because um, the times were very different. Storage was very expensive. We were handling large amounts of files, whether they were photographies or, or videos. Um, and it proved not economically viable as a business because we were not selling much. Like There were no subscriptions. We were monetizing whatever you could print your photo on. So you could print 
like paper prints, but you could also print your photo on a cookie or a plate. But it was at the very early days of e-commerce, and I think our use case for printing photos on everything was just not compelling enough for a lot of our users. So it was a typical case of the dot-com bubble bursting, where we had a lot of eyeballs, but very little in terms of um, money at the end of the day and couldn't sustain the business. Um, so I went through three rounds of layoffs. Um, every time I, people were getting laid off, I was getting a promotion because they, they liked that I was, I think, more, maybe more scrappy and more independent than a lot of the people they had. Um, and then my managers started getting fired and I ended up being director of engineering of a, a team of two or three at the end. Um, hmm. with, no plan, like we were uh, liquidating the company, trying to find a buyer, and then Sony bought a few of the remaining assets and, and hired a bunch of uh, the engineers uh, because we were powering their uh, photo sharing website as well. And I guess as like personally, uh, that's both very exciting and also a bit frightening. Did you have like um, aha moment where you said, you know, this part of the industry I like, but this other part is really not me. I want to go in another direction. How did you react personally? I was able to identify maybe a, a different types of categories of employees, like the, the true believers who believed anything that was shown to them and, and then the skeptics. And I was definitely part of the skeptics when they were management was telling us we were going to IPO anytime now. And that happened several times and they were showing exponential growth graphs of our revenue over time. and and. I just couldn't believe it. Like, uh, this didn't make any sense uh, logically as to what the potential of the company was. Yes, we saw that there was a new um, a, a new industry emerging, digital photography. But the the fact that they were predicting all these things just to get to the IPO, which was the goal at the time, um, to get liquidity and, and pay back all the all the VCs. So it made me very skeptical about anything going forward um, and I think helped us and my co-founders at Eventbrite were very similar in, in understanding the value of being scrappy and doing with what you have and not extrapolating like grand plans that are totally unrealistic um, but being very thoughtful about building the company on the right values and bringing people that share those values over time um, we, we needed realistic people that could manage expectation and, and grow the, the business um, but yeah we i learned a lot through that experience i think and applied it to later uh, and my more entrepreneurial life i guess uh, that must have been really useful when you have co-founded um, even bright and especially interesting moment in your life when you met uh, the people who became the co-founder of even bright together with you can you let us know a little bit more about these people and your future co-founders uh, Renaud? yeah of course and it was very uh, seminal moment i think in my life uh, so the, one of these key points in time where you reflect and say, yes, I made the right decision. Um, so a friend of mine who was my coworker at Zing, the photo sharing company I was working for as my first uh, software development job, uh, introduced me to Kevin Hartz uh, and his future wife, Julia. Uh, at 
late 20, 2005, I think, was the first time we met. Uh, just telling me that Kevin, who was had founded a previous company that my friend was working for, um, was starting something new uh, in the event space and that he was looking for uh, someone technical to join their founding team. So I remember going to a very empty warehouse or, uh, yeah, I think it was a warehouse, somewhere in the South Market District in San Francisco. It was very empty at the time. I think 2005 was still a very low moment for uh, Silicon Valley in general. Uh, investment hadn't fully restarted yet. So there were all these empty offices and there was a glass um, meeting room in the middle of it. And then Kevin and Julia were there and just came in and sat down. And then we chatted for quite a while, actually. And I presented the projects I had been working on the side. Uh, I'd built a, a website for my photography, for example. And it was in multiple languages. He had a shopping cart. He had all kinds of interesting bells and whistles. Um, talked about my previous job at, at Zing, the photo sharing company. Um, and they told me a little bit more about what they were planning to build. Uh, so it was mostly, um, at the time, something that could be built on top of PayPal. Uh, Kevin was an early investor in PayPal and he saw the, the power of the PayPal platform and thought it could be applied to the event industry. Uh, where there was probably space for a self-service platform that lets uh, event organizers very quickly create a set of tickets that they can then sell online and get the money directly sent to their PayPal accounts. It was groundbreaking in, in the sense that uh, event creators had no access to their money until after the event for the most part. And most of the online tools at the time were really focused on the large events, uh, the stadiums, uh, the big conferences, and there was nothing else for the smaller, like mid-sized events. So the opportunity looked very interesting. Uh, Kevin's background was amazing. He had all these great investment and his previous company, Zoom, which eventually was acquired by PayPal, um, also worked really well at the time. So I decided to take the plunge and, and join the adventure with them. It has been 15 years now. It's been wow. a, a wild ride. It told me something that I found very interesting in a period where companies are, are mostly driven by the short-term vision rather than the long-term vision. You have to be constantly vigilant as, as you build your, um, your startup. Right? Look at what's happening around you and we were incredibly lucky to benefit from the emergence of social networks which had amazing applications for the event space and, and this is a very social uh, activity like you want to do it with your friends with family with other people you care for you want to show all the best photos from all your experiences with everyone in your network so it was a very important and critical way to spread the word about the, the company and all the great experiences we were uh, hosting on our platform. And then mobile came along as well and became super important, I think, for us to um, have all get rid of paper tickets, first of all. I mean, that had been going on for the, in the airline industry for quite a while, and we took that to the event industry as well. So our first application just scanned barcodes at, at the door so that you didn't need to print anymore. 
and then become a great way to discover what's around happening around you, uh, what's coming up, and keep track of event organizers that you enjoy uh, going to their events. And I think it's because we were watchful of where the industry was going that we were able to integrate these new technologies into our product offering and in the end create a better experience for both um, event creators and for uh, attendees in general. Is that a part of your message uh, through this crisis to stick to your mission, to stick to the human component of, of your mission? I think we all realized during the COVID crisis how much we miss physical contact with other people and making new friends and having these real life experiences. Um, so we firm believers that the, the live physical experience will come back in a big way, that we'll, we'll all want to go back to some of our habits in the past and some of the emotions that we feel are very different uh, when we're physically present uh, versus just experiencing in, uh, on a Zoom call. Uh, I, I can think of music or entertainment in general, comedies, feeling the energy in a room when someone is performing, um, just doing fun things with friends. We made the bet that we should focus and remain focused on our core capabilities, which are for physical events to be the best ticketing platform. And we recently acquired a company that is focused on marketing for events. So we'll want, we need to build the engine of growth or the passion economy that translates into physical gatherings. Um, so that that is really our mission from going forward after COVID. It's to help all these creators who want to have physical experiences with uh, attendees and, and people who share the same the same passion, the same interests, um, who want to be uh, entertained and, and grow in, in their personal lives. so much Renaud for sharing your life journey and professional journey with us today hope we can go to a concert in Paris or in San Francisco soon and, so too, uh, yes. <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> we miss that so much have a great great day thank you so much Renaud bye bye thank you Irene